Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by John Lane. John is the head teacher of St Michael's Catholic Primary School in Ashford, Surrey, a voluntary aided Catholic primary school under the trusteeship of the Diocese of Westminster, teaching children aged 2 to 11. John, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. You're welcome, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you join us, John. Um, The purpose of this discussion is to first and foremost establish your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside for a moment and just consider that in a bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? I think it's such a big topic isn't it there's many types of leaders for me the leader in a school context for for me as a catholic school leader i think for me it's about calling a vocation and and giving something of myself and and what i have to offer my strength to serve my school community um it's about being a decision maker setting the vision and i think when i talk about leadership um to others i use the analogy sometimes of it's almost like running a race uh, in a, with a group of people. And you're all trying to, to run the race together. Sometimes you're leading from the front uh, where you're showing the direction, setting the pace, leading by example and asking others to follow. And I think the COVID uh, pandemic for schools, that's been definitely the role uh, as a leader of a school is to lead from the front and set, set the the vision and the way forward um, but that re- relies on trust and, and transparency and honesty is key to that so that people do believe in you as a leader and, and are willing to follow you through that difficult time um, sometimes you're leading from the, the middle where you're part of the pack and you're problem solving together with trusted members of your leadership team and making mm. decisions together and I think at that point, you need to be humble and make sure you're sharing ideas and being open to others and picking up on other people's strengths. And I think sometimes you lead from the back of the pack where you encourage and empower others to run ahead, to set their own pace and direction, but just support and guide them and be there if they fall or they need encouragement. And I think for me, that's probably the most satisfying role you find yourself in as a leader when you see others that you uh, supported run on ahead and take initiatives and really have an impact and that's really satisfying but for me at the moment I feel very much like a leader that is leading from the front and flying the flag and it it comes with a lot of responsibility and the Mm. decision making that you have to make is is really important but you need everyone sort of behind you and willing to follow you I think. Of course, because the buck ultimately stops with you and you do have to take ownership of situations. And even though, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic um, was completely unseen from everybody, um, today's generation of leaders has really had to step up to the plate to respond to those challenges. Um, For yourself, John, working within um, the education uh, sector, of course, the primary education sector specifically, just how difficult has it been navigating the last few weeks and months? It's been really challenging. It's, it's, I think, for all schools and all industries, every business and every kind of part of life, really, it, it's been a challenge. No different here at school. Um, we were obviously brought to a, an abrupt close in March, and then since then, it's been all about trying to um, 
open and we were closed but we weren't really closed of course we were open for children all the way through um and so the logistics of organizing that um were probably the biggest challenge but um since june we were so keen to get more children back at school and and we've done a really good job with everyone supporting us around us our parents our staff and, and our leadership team we've managed to open from the 1st of June. We had 44 children back. But today, for example, as I sit here, and we've had 181 children in today. We've got 232 children in school for the last two weeks of term across the week. That's 50% of our population. So we're really happy with how we have striven to try and get as many children back before the summer. Um, so it's been a real effort. It's challenged lots of what we do at school and made us rethink many aspects of school life, our use of technology, the role of exams, down to how children come in and out of school and the uniform they wear. But really, for me, it's it's reaffirmed what education is all about, um, that we need children in school and they're taught by brilliant teachers with the support of the parents working together. And I think everyone... Uh, probably parents at home who've been trying to do home learning have appreciated that fact uh, more than most through this crisis. So it's been um, it's been a challenge, but um, one that I, that I think we've risen to. Mm. And that's um, certainly encouraging to hear. And I can imagine as well that from a mental health point of view, it's been quite a challenge mm. for you as well because um, it's important to remember that people react to different things differently, let alone a crisis such as COVID-19. So it's about, of course, safeguarding the mental well-being of staff, of course, who may be worried and a little bit uncertain about what the future is going to bring. Um, it's about, of course, looking after your own as well as you're trying to sort of lead the response. But also in your case, it's about the, the well-being of the pupils as well, because they're all, they've all been at home. Of course, some have been returning, as you've said there, but they've been missing that sort of social interaction quite a bit. Um, so that's uh, something to, um, of course, bear in in mind during this time but also coming back to school now it's not of course going to be a return to the classroom environment as they remembered it either is it so from a mental health mm-hmm. and well-being perspective there that's also something to consider it's not just going to be a quick fix as soon as they come back absolutely not and i think all schools are aware of that and we for example our response to that has been to set up a, a team of people that will uh, are looking at that now and planning for that um, when we come back and we've had the different groups of children, I think there's children who quite enjoyed being at home and the time away from school and they've cracked on with their home learning, been really well supported. There's some children who, where they haven't had the, the attention they need to, to get on with their home learning because mum and dad may be very busy or they, um, with their own work. Um, and there's some children who will have had a really torrid time during the lockdown and the stresses and strains on family life may have, um, taking its toll. So we'll have the whole spectrum uh, to deal with when we get back. And we've already started really by putting in some measures where we're identifying children that um, may be anxious about it. We've, we, our teachers are, are making Zoom calls with them and keeping in touch um, with the home learning and making sure that um, their welfare is looked after. We have um, a brilliant emotional uh, literacy support assistant two of them, in fact, and they've been making weekly phone calls to, to children and parents that need that extra support. So, But I think the best 
medicine will be a return to routine and a return to normal and return to learning in September. So that's what we're we're really excited and looking forward to getting all the children back in September. And of course, there will be anxieties. And we've built Mm. our curriculum in September around dealing with those, acknowledging them, but very important message that we're looking forward and we're going to get through this. And, And by being around their friends and learning again, you know, that's the best thing that they can be doing to, to get over those um, anxieties and worries, I think. And since, of course, John, you mentioned that it's this period has made the school sort of reflect on the use of technology mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, even though, of course, you're looking forward to ultimately a return to everybody getting back into school in the September. Do you think that there will be some features of this lockdown period in terms of education provision that could persist into the future as we adjust to the new normal, such as sort of that's kind of technological delivery? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, it, it was on our agenda and the agenda, it moved up the agenda quite quickly when we had to um, provide home learning. Um, and we've managed that um, pretty well. But there's always room for improvement. And I think there's always ways you can uh, improve what you offer our children. So um, it's it, a lot of what we will do, I think, may stay the way we organize the day Um the how lessons work, how the children are best taught. It's made us re- look at all of those things. It's reaffirmed what we knew already, but it has made us think about things more openly and be willing to make changes um, to move with the times. And I think we are moving to different times in education where um, school may feel a bit different and learning will, will feel a bit different too. So it's exciting in one way, um, but I think it, what it's done for us is realise the importance of teachers and parents working together, um, um, focusing on what is really important for the children to learn, having it set out, having it um, differentiated and making sure that each child has a sort of personalised approach. So it's, it's, um, it's, it is different, but exciting in some ways certainly seems that this pandemic experience has taught you an awful lot about the, those aspects mm. and thinking about what the uh, the future might now bring as we sort of adjust to the challenges of the new normal especially from september onward what do you mm. envision being on the horizon for yourself and for st michael's roman catholic primary school and what do you really hope to achieve over the next year well our main aim is to get all the children back. I mean, that we can't wait for that, to have all the children back in September. And it will look and feel a bit different at school. So um, hand washing and hygiene um, will be, you know, a really important part of the everyday routine. Um, but um, it's really about trying to identify who is, um, who has fallen behind, who needs that extra emotional uh, support. Um, so the first half term will be really getting back into the routine, setting the children in and then establishing where they actually are through some kind of assessments we might do at school. And then how do we respond to that? So our curriculum next year is, is going to be adaptable so that the, the teachers can actually respond to where the children are because we don't quite know until we get them back. Um so, um, and again, it's about getting, it's making the children feel positive about school and positive about the future when they get back. Um, so I, I think it's, um, 
looking good. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we don't have any, you know, scares or any shutdowns uh, either locally or, or nationally so we can get back to work really and get back to having the children back full time where they should be at school with their friends. So that's what I'm looking forward to um, next year. Yeah, definitely. And let's certainly hope that it's an easy transition back and there'll be some positive news to uh, come um, in the next few months. Mm. And, you know, John, given how informative it's been having you come on and discuss some of this with us, I think it would be great to actually catch up in the future and just see how things are getting on a little bit of a way into the year and just assess how... Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, yeah. To, just assess how the yeah. pupils, of course, are adapting to um, working under new circumstances with the bubbles and everything in place and um, just to keep things safe. Um, I've got to say, John, it's been a real pleasure having you join us uh, today. And I thank you once again for the time to to do just that and most importantly until we do speak again in future do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we still don't know of course whether there will be a second upsurge in cases and hopefully we can keep our fingers crossed that that won't come to pass and we'll see only an upward trajectory from here on in thank you very much scott that was John Lane speaking, head teacher of St. Michael's Catholic Primary School in Ashford, Surrey. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, um, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Um, during his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. All of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak 
uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry. We, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? 
Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him, which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.